0: Welcome to In Excess Access All Areas. My name is B, and I will be co hosting this series of podcasts with my In Excess nerd, Hayden Murdoch. We will be delving deep with you all to explore everything there is to know about this iconic band of brothers in excess, sharing music, tours, videos, albums, and oh, so much more. Well,
1: hello. Welcome to In Excess Access All Areas, episode 115, the deep dive podcast that aims to, to explore all things in excess. Get them into the hall of fame. Have fun with my compadre B, and also engage a bunch of listeners, be it experienced patrons and new listeners. All, overall, hello B, how are you? Um, yes, I'm,
0: uh, I'm. I'm shit actually, Hayden. Yeah. <laughs>
1: A little two week gap in recording and B's got COVID and we uh you know, we, we bow to our health first and you know, uh the podcast second. Mm-hmm. However, we have felt a lot of guilt, haven't we, B, about still not being able to record like <laughs> we do. So I'm very uh admiring of you jumping on and I guess it was like me two, three weeks ago doing something similar in a way when I had it. Yeah, yeah,
0: you were sick too, weren't you? Yeah, yes. so let's hope this is uh, the end of it. I'm steaming up. I can't hardly see you, actually, with my mask <laughs> and my glasses. Um, I I can see that you're in a hotel room there.
1: I am. Look, you know, there's a place in Australia that rivals uh, Vegas, New York. Uh, it rivals uh, LA, London, uh, Madrid, some of the bla- uh, great cities in the world. Um, I'm in the Australian Capital Territory called Canberra, well, Let's be honest, it's a politician's town. It's a public servant town, and no no sort of Bellagio or you know massive big casinos here. But I have enjoyed myself for the third week in a row being in Canberra for work activity, a place that In Excess has played some very big concerts at before, uh, and a thriving music scene when bands do tour the country. So I know Midnight, all are coming here soon. David Gaunt saw them in London the other week uh, or in England. And uh, yes, this is where I am at the time of recording.
0: I love going to Canberra. I love all the um, the, you know, the museums you've got there. The Science Museum is amazing.
1: Yeah, well, I'm in a suburb called Fishwick, which is uh, oh. notoriously industrial. And amidst a big industrial area, there are some let's just say establishments of the night be. Okay. Okay, <laughs> where uh, they do a thriving business. Is that the Happy Indians place? Not that I've been in there, uh, and know there's anything wrong with that. But uh, yes. You just so I'm not got in the ground part you? of town. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> let's let's get on before we lose. Oh, we business. will we will
1: before you your your glasses steam up any further. But uh, a little bit of sort of updates. Uh, thank you to all of the uh, contributors and listeners who have ordered their Richard Lowenstein book. I think I may better go there on Wednesday, be when I'm heading back from Canberra and pick them up, or Thursday. And uh, we've got a lot of people who have ordered them. Be.
0: Hmm. I think there's um a good fourteen um that I've ordered now, and we've got another couple more coming through. So you can go on to the second batch if you yes. haven't missed this one. So please get your orders to us via email. That would be fantastic.
1: And effectively, uh, if you want uh, an autograph, uh, book, uh. Yeah, you know, dedicated to yourself and uh, written to yourself uh, in terms of a sign-up by Richard, um, you can order that. And if you don't want one autograph, you can order one too. But, um, uh, yeah, we're very excited to get those out to some of the uh, listeners who enjoyed that double episode with Richard. Um, I think, uh, interestingly, be in the last couple of weeks, uh, Richard Richard loves his cat, doesn't he? He's always um, loved his cat. Yeah. Yes. Um,
0: what, what that, oh, let me think what her name is. Um, Marmalade.
1: Right. Well, mm. I thought, you know, I was thinking the other day, baby, as a gesture from the podcast, we could give him a little gift, etc. there. And I was thinking wine, champagne, and a whole bunch of things. Then I thought, I might just get a can of whiskers.
0: No, <laughs> not whiskers. <laughs>
1: huh?
0: <laughs> get something a bit more classy than whiskers,
1: Tom. Oh, Okay. All right. Well, uh, you know, we uh, uh, whiskets, you know, what are the dry biscuits? <laughs> 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 yeah, no, it might be a You never know. You would
0: like that. Yeah. 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 yeah.
1: Now, Bea, we're going to spare your voice from welcoming all of the valuable experience patrons on. Uh, they know who they are. And they know we appreciate them. But we would like to do a bit of a special shout out to uh, two new patrons. And I think we also have a returning patron, don't we, B?
0: Yes, we do. I'd like to say welcome back to Jamie and a big hello to Verno, which I don't know if I'm saying right or not. So let me know. And Diana.
1: Fantastic. Thanks for jumping on, guys, and, you know, just helping us uh, keep the doors open for uh, for recording and uh, being part of this sort of collective mission there. So, thank you. All right, B. well, uh, I haven't, and you probably uh, would notice this, I haven't asked how your In Excess Week has been, more because I care more about your health, but but uh, give me some uh, juicy uh, anecdotes about your In Excess Week.
0: Well, I have got a juicy one, actually. Wow. Um, so, KP? at Yes. I spoke to him and asked me if he was going to look at the documentary and he finally came back and his words were lovely. But I've got, I'll read out what he says. He says, hi, B. Well, I finally found time to watch the On a Bus Tour and it was Awesome in capitals. So well put together. You guys should be so proud. Thank you both for your continued love and efforts for all things in excess. And then I said, and did you know about the Church of Kirk? Spooky coincidence that Michael was christened there. And he says, no, but I didn't. But Tim and my first band, Guinness, performed there also. oh, wow. was our first Paying gig Oh wow <laughs> How cool is that And not only that He says that's when They were about 15 or 16 He yes. says and apparently ACDC played there too
1: At the Church of Kirk
0: At the Church of Kirk And the fact that it has Where Kirk's Michael was christened. It. Yeah, it's a, bit, wow. it's a bit odd isn't it So wow. I don't think it's actually in The the church We I think it's in the hall So yes. we'll have to go again to the hall <laughs>
1: <laughs> For sure for sure. That's
0: that's pretty cool, isn't it?
1: Well, these are the little stories that, that uh, make all this uh, worthwhile. And mm-hmm. um, um, as you've done a little bit of name dropping, I shall do a little bit of name dropping. But I did call a great friend of the podcast, say Mark Opitz, and uh, Mark has uh, been over to Capri, as you know, and and had a great holiday there, uh, working on a bunch of things that uh, we may have a little bit of involvement with. Um, Uh, But he did want to say uh, uh, hello to everybody in the podcast world who listens in And uh, he's very excited to get on for another episode soon And um, he's uh, heading off to Thailand this Friday I think there's unfortunately a significant sort of uh, musical icon lady over there Who ran a lot of the touring stuff She passed away recently So he's going over there with Jimmy Barnes for the funeral So big shout out to Mark uh, And he sends his love to everybody
0: we would like to extend our condolences to the family and friends of Colleen Uh
1: B today we've got something quite unique with our topic of the week and it's uh, uh as we probably put in a little promo blurb, uh, we uh, well myself personally I guess on our behalf did an interview about probably six seven eight weeks ago with uh, John uh, lamro from the hustle and also Nick uh, Bambach from uh, rock in retrospect and Primarily Nick's podcast, but John being a contributor and guest on there um, liaised with us, and we went on uh, there as in excess All areas uh, to really, I guess, first and foremost, talk about in excess and pump up their tires. Uh, and secondly, you know, we got asked uh, a little bit about you know why we put the podcast together. So you know, today we're going to be uh, putting in sort of forty-five minutes, maybe fifty minutes of that three-hour <laughs> deep dive. Um, and we're also going to encourage people, if you want to hear the rest of it and you feel like it's something you enjoyed, to go over to Nick's podcast as a bit of a thank you to him uh, and John for allowing us to come on and promote uh, what we're all doing down here. Uh, but you can hear the rest of it. So uh, it was a lot of fun doing it. I know it happened at a certain time where you're at work and um, and uh, I was a bit more involved with that. Uh, but uh, it was great to represent us, B, And uh, I guess spread the excess love around the, the planet and, and pair up with some other podcasts
0: Yeah, that was fantastic I really enjoyed listening to it I, I mentioned it a couple of weeks ago So I'm really looking forward to hearing the feedback From the fans from this as well Yeah,
1: so uh, we'll get to another topic But we thought we'd give a little preview to that, uh, etc, B, But uh, I guess, importantly, what time is it?
0: It's time for the news Hi, it's Dave from England,
1: and you're listening to In Excess Access All Areas with Hayden and B. And now it's time for the news. All right, B. Well, I thought in, in, in uh, respect of your throaty voice today and feeling a bit ill, I might just go bang, bang, bang with the news and get out of the way super fast. Is that okay? I'm getting thumbs up. All right. Now we don't have chart news uh, because it looks like the album's dead and buried in the Australian charts. Unfortunately, it's about six weeks in a row, but. It may reappear. Um, but there is an interesting chart watch going on, and it's a subtle chart watch. And uh, it does involve uh, two, two people you do know one's called B and one's called Hayden. And uh, we actually, uh, I know B's done this privately, and I've been doing it a little bit myself, but we've been comparing, I think, individually our mixtape podcast episodes to see who's more popular. And uh, let's just say, B, uh, the other day I looked on, we were 333 downloads each. But in the last week, you've gone ahead 3.36 for me and 3.38 for you. So and then I thought about B, I might download one and listen to it myself <laughs> to catch up. <laughs> uh B's laughing at the moment. Uh, but then I thought that would be cheating. Uh, but I am selling to myself the fact B that mine did come out a week after yours. So uh you are ahead, but uh you have seven days grace on me. So um, but that is a little subtle one because I think I think I saw you posting somewhere. Oh, I was gonna see what Aiden's up to in his mixtape, and I thought Funny she said that because I was looking at it myself. <laughs> anyway, so that's a bit of a navel gazing chart watch there. Um, uh, second thing just to mention, um, good old Andrew Farris. Um, uh, fantastic. He's back in Nashville. Looks like he's there for uh, a good sort of uh, period of time with um, you know, some music appearances on some shows, uh, and also then you know, going out to some other sort of regions. And uh, I know he uh, is playing at a, a festival called Song of the Mountains in Virginia, uh, which is a sort of a bluegrass-type sort of festival there. And it's going to be recorded on PBS, which is I think the public uh, uh, broadcasting sort of station. And he was playing You Are My Rock, which uh, uh, I guess got a bit of an airing there. So well on to Andrew. It looks like he's going to be based here for a little bit of time, playing, recording, uh, doing some press, uh, which is great. Um, also two, uh, lots of happy birthdays this week, B. Um, happy birthday, welcome to wherever you are. You turn 30. Okay, so big happy birthday to you. And Mark and I had a little bit of a chat about that today, and we've you know, we're on track to get our little mission going with not enough time very soon. Uh, secondly, big happy birthday to John Farris, who uh when this podcast goes out, will have turned 61. Um, And equally, in the same week, I didn't know this, but I found out today that the edge from U2 turned 61. So there you go, a little bit of a similarity. Uh, God was definitely, uh, had his musical chops on during that week in 1961. Also, too, at the time of recording today, B, it is the 8th of August, and uh, it is also happy birthday to never tear us apart. This was the date in 1988 it got released. So it was released on the 8th of the 8th in 88. And I remember where I was on that day, B, because I was on a bus and it was 8.08 and eight seconds on the 8th of the 8th, 88. So there you go. I remember that and the bus driver tooted and it was on the radio and we all had a bit of a laugh. So there you go. Um. Uh, valet, uh, rest in peace Archie Roach, uh, I know Matthew Marslin, a good friend of the show, MM, uh, did post something uh, during the week and they're both from Warnable. and he was a very famous Indigenous singer here uh, who passed away with complications and health at 66 and uh, won a lot of ARIA awards, which is our equivalent to Grammy. So shout out to his community there um also two cover shows coming up B, uh, you and i have spoken about a very exciting cover show initiative uh i think in november that might involve the don't change boys where we may be able to sort of align ourselves with their concert that night and uh um i'll just sneak peek at that info now because there's a bit more going into it but it looks like blair's very excited to do a little bit of a joint venture between the podcast and his uh, live show so B's uh, giving me the thumbs up at the moment that we're going to do something like that. I think. Also to uh, shout out to this great article, uh, Def Leppard, uh, Phil Collin, That is C O L L E N, not Phil Collins, uh, but Phil Collen, one of the chief uh, guitarists and songwriters from Def Leppard. Uh, great article on the band. Uh, I think it's there. 35th anniversary of of, uh, Hysteria, one of the seminal albums of metal in the, uh, or soft metal, soft rock in the 80s. Um, He came out and had a, a great deep dive article on themselves, U2 and NXS. Uh, and there was a quite a big section about In Excess, what he loved about the band and what he, what he got out of uh, the style of music that, that uh, In Excess played, uh, but also had a great little uh, anecdote about a song that him and Andrew had written that hasn't seen the light of day yet. Uh, but I know when Def Leppard toured in Australia, Andrew went along to their concert and there's a lot of good photos post-stage for that. So do yourself a favour. You can sort of uh, you know, plug that into your Google search and you should find that. Uh, not to be outdone uh we won't go media wars this week but the kirkster did find himself be uh becoming the the manly music festival ambassador so without uh you know andrew and you know getting a lot of media time kirkster's uh, jumped in and he's there's a 12 day manly music festival and uh uh, I think Kirk. There was some uh, video footage of uh, of a his trophy room. Uh, the The Daily Telegraph did a sort of video of his trophy room, and Kirk was taking the uh, Daily Telegraph newspaper around, filming that. So uh, well done to Kirk. And also, quick little sort of shout out to a guy called Eric Alpa. Uh, His name pops up on a lot of the platforms, and I don't really know him very well, but every time I see his name, I think in excess, and he's also got an induction petition out there help the band get to the Hall of Fame. So I don't really care whose petitions are out there as long as everyone's doing something collectively and individually that helps the cause, and I just want to say thank you to him and all the great articles he posts on his platforms as well. So if you ever want to see some good stuff. Uh, that's some good places to see and just quickly um with the welcome to wherever you are anniversary there's lots of articles uh, there's one in the ultimate classic rock publication and there's lots of things out there um, just sort of highlighting that album in retrospect so uh, you should get some good information there but uh, that's the news of the week b you have to we are
2: magic. don't let your
0: Unfortunately, with um, lots of sadness um, around the world, we lost a ray of sunshine this um, week in Olivia Newton-John. Um, Hayden and I will do a, a better tribute next week. Unfortunately, I'm not well enough to um, do her justice. Um, but um, Olivia, you—wow, you—you were loved by. So many people and animals, <laughs> and um, our hearts go out to Chloe and her family and friends.
2: <laughs>
0: to lighten that mood, we're also very happy to see that um, Max Q. <laughs> has um, been um, remastered and re-released. And um, that's some very exciting news. And again, next week we will um, elaborate on that um, um, in talks with some people to find out more details from um, Golden um, Robot who um, released the recording. So, um, yeah, that's very exciting. <laughs>
1: All right, Bea, well, uh, we're going to go into uh, our topic of the week, and look, we won't reheat old soup and what we said earlier, but it's effectively a civil cast where three podcasts have got together, uh, NXS Access All Areas, which is us, uh, Nick uh, Bambach, uh, which is Rocket Retrospect, which is, uh, I guess, this this uh, topic's going out primarily on his platform, and John Lamro from The Hustle is coming as more of a guest to align us all together, so um, essentially, you know, what Nick does on his podcast is look back at various rock acts. Nick's only in his sort of, I think, oh, not might be about 30s. Um, so, most of the bands that he loves and he's discovered have come through his parents, B, Um, And it's great. His knowledge, you know, for someone so young, not <laughs> feeling old now, uh, is awesome. Um, and look, we just really hope that this little sample of about 40, 50 minutes you enjoy. And then you go over to his uh, platform and podcast and check out the rest of the interview. Uh, because we do talk all things in excess for a little bit longer than this uh, part. Hey this is Tim Farris. big shout out to Hayden and B. also want to say hello to all the listeners and in fans. Thanks for listening. I love you Hayden and B you're doing a great job Keep it up. This is Ella from Nibelberg, the Netherlands. You're listening to Inexcess Access
0: All Areas with Hayden and B. And now it's time for the topic of the week.
3: Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of and Retrospect. I'm your host, Nick Bambeck. I'm joined by two guests today. The first guest is a returning guest. He was on our second ever episode when we talked about Duran Duran. And I think he is the person that helped get them into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame this year. That's our good friend, John Lamro of the uh,
4: Hustle Podcast. How's it going, John? Very good. Thank you for bringing me back. And I, this was, you and I did this, Nick. They have us to thank for being in the Rock Hall. Let's be honest about this. <laughs> we did.
3: I have the theory that someone listened and was like so enamored by our arguments and our take on The Duran Duran episode that we got them in the hall. Their first ballot,
4: no less. Me too. I agree.
3: And then we also have a second guest, and he's from the lands out under Australia. It's Hayden Murdoch. How's it going, Hayden?
1: G'day, guys. Thanks for having me.
3: Thank you so much for coming on. I I know you have um, a podcast, right?
1: I do. Uh, My uh, partner and I, as in colleague in the podcast world, uh, B, we host a a show called In Access, Access All Areas. Unfortunately, she's working today. It's uh, midday in Australia, roughly at this time. So uh, uh, money needs call, but I'm sneaking into the back office of my job uh, to represent the podcast and and share some insights.
3: Excellent. I'm so happy that You came on the show and it's, I think, our first forte to Australia. So this is like we're breaking ground 30 something episodes into rock and retrospect. Today we're discussing, I think, one of the best bands of the 1980s and who's someone who I think is very underrated. That's In Excess. And I know, of course, you have a podcast on In Excess. So you were like an ideal guest. And I know John's a fan of the band as well. Um, What was your first memory, Hayden, of In Excess?
1: Well, look, being from Australia and growing up here, we uh, were probably fortunate to see their first career, and that was their Australian career. Um, They've been a band that probably went on to have a, a US career, uh, a UK-European career, and a South American career. All the different stages, but as a kid, sort of eight or nine years of age, they were... Uh, and we did a lot of video shows in Australia before MTV. So we had shows like Countdown and Simon Townsend's Wonderworld, which was the show that first played In excess Track. So... Probably being, you know, that vital youth and that age—that uh, was sort of uh, my early memories of seeing them on the TV, figuring their own style out in those days.
4: I actually oh. have a question for you,
1: Hayden. If you don't, if you don't mind, Nick, I'm going to insert
4: myself here a little bit because we have a, an NXS expert and a peer and a colleague, so I have some questions too. Um, remind me where Dogs of Space work into
1: the history?
4: Is that? That was Michael's band before excess or how does it work? What's no, the- it was
1: Dogs in Space was a movie. Uh, I know based- that, but
4: didn't, wasn't it based on a real band, or am I wrong?
1: Yeah, it was based on a punk band set in 1979. Uh, a guy called Sam, uh, the name the, the name escapes me the surname, but uh, the movie was made in uh, January, February 1986, and it was really weird because that the week or two that they were filming that was the week that NXS's What You Need became top five in America. Really? So Michael got a Way call off. while he's playing this sort of uh, 1970s punk rocker, you know, in these rat infested homes in Melbourne filming it. And he got a call from Murphy and, and Andrew saying, hey, we're top five in America. And he found it hard to reconcile because that yeah, happened on the uh, precipice of, you know, Listen Like Thieves and everything. So,
4: yeah. I'm so dumb. I thought that movie was made in the earlier 80s, pre like big time no. fame by then. Yeah, and, so he, he, I, and I thought it was I thought that was a real band that they were in, not just a movie band.
1: Well, it was based on a real band, but uh, yes, yeah, set in the s- okay. 1970, 76, 77, 78 and um, okay. actually made in 86. Got it.
3: Wow. Very cool. Hayden. John, what was your first memory of NXS?
4: You know, I was trying to piece that together. It was a little bit of a few different things. Number one, the first thing I remember is seeing a video for the one thing on MTV. Um, that original, that first camera shot of the, you know, the them in the tuxedos and the food, and thinking the band was called Inks, and mm-hmm. um, and uh, and then I remember seeing pictures of them in Smash Hits magazine. Uh, whenever there was there was a brief period, I don't know, early '80s, when I would occasionally stumble upon a Smash Hits magazine, and they would be in it. But I never knew what the songs were that they were talking about. But I remembered, oh, Inks—that's that band that I remember the video from. But it was finally by the time "What You Need" got big that um, I, I all those different—you know—I was able to connect all those various dots. Oh, this is the band from the before, and so on and so on. And and then, of course, you know, when Kick comes out, it changes everything.
3: Absolutely, they became international superstars with Kick. Yeah. My first memory of NXS, because I'm relatively younger, I, I was born in 89, my dad loves NXS. That's one of his favorite bands, like 10 favorite bands. and we, he has, Oh, yeah. So I'm going to actually tell you a really quick story. So what when we recorded the Duran Duran episode last year, John, and I said, oh, yeah, I've recorded an episode Duran Duran. You know what my dad's response was? Why don't you do an NXS episode? And I was like, "What?" And now it all comes <laughs> all around. So I know he's yes. listening to this episode, and he's
1: really, uh, laughing. I, but there is he, a song called "All Around," uh, Nick.
3: That's true. <laughs> oh my! See, it's it's meant to be. <laughs> it's meant to be. Wow, this is yeah. amazing. Uh, yeah. So he has all their albums, but the one that was always played the most was "Kick," and probably Listen like "Thieves." Those are the two that I feel like they were always yeah. played the most, and "Need You Tonight" and new sensation and all those great songs. And yeah, so I feel like they've always been ever present in my life because my dad loves in excess. Have you guys ever seen them
1: in concert? Look, fortunately, I have. Um, uh, it wasn't really till the X Factor tour. I was uh, doing my sort of final exams in year twelve, and and probably didn't have the money or the uh, the maturity to be allowed to go to concerts uh, for the Kick tour. But I saw them on the X tour. Uh, I was fortunate enough to then sort of see them really on every tour thereafter, uh, and plus some of the JD Fortune tours and things as well. So I think all up was probably over twenty times. Yeah.
3: Whoa! Wow! Oh. Twenty times. Yes. Yeah. That's a little excess, what not you think? No, I'm joking. <laughs> actually, some of the guests, like I will say, like we've had guests that seen the artists like 40 times, 50 times, and sometimes hundreds of times. So it's so that's real dedication, though. Yeah, Double digit yeah, numbers.
1: Yeah, no, I was fortunate, very fortunate.
3: Yeah. Oh wow, John, have you seen them in concert?
4: Yeah, I've only seen them once, and it was shortly before Michael died. Actually, it was that oh. summer. Uh, They came through Park City. I've always, I cannot, it was probably July, I think, and he died in November. Mm -hmm. And I've mentioned this before on my own show, growing up in Salt Lake City, bands like NXS didn't come through very often. Um, They had once or twice before, but either I wasn't there or I couldn't go or whatever. So we just weren't a mainstay for big acts like NXS. But by that point, I hate to say it, they weren't the, you know, world- Beaters that they had been before so hmm. they did come through put on a great show Michael did seem a little I don't know if out of it's the right word because that would imply some, like he was on drugs or something that's not what I mean but it just you sensed a little bit of exhaustion it wasn't the quite the same magnetic guy that you knew you know conquered the world just five ten years earlier or the, whatever
1: the, the only sort of real genuine professional footage of that Era of elegantly wasted. There's a, a live concert at Loreley in Germany, mm. and uh, it's they played well, played live. You know, the songs are great. You know, songs, instrumentation, everything there. But yeah, Michael. Michael's. You know, he's got the long black hair. He looks yep. pale, pasty. Doesn't look as vibrant. Um, does a great show, but yeah, he's yeah. he's just a little bit off key. You know. Yeah. It Four feels like. To come.
4: Agreed, and it feels like he's aware that they aren't landing like they used to. And it's hot, yeah. It is. So I did see a JD Fortune show. I don't really count that. You know, it just, that, mm. no offense to every other member of NXS, but it still mm. felt a little bit like a covers band or something mm. like that. I think know? it's
3: hard because he was such a distinctive lead singer that it's like, how do you replace someone like that? Like, it's almost like a one in a million kind of uh, talent in many ways. So mm-hmm. it's kind of hard because I'm trying to think of another band that, they tried to do it and you're like, Ooh, like, I don't know. Well,
1: like- I can give you a, a, a local comparison. We hear, we heard a lot in the media over here when it happened and that it's the ACDC comparison. Yeah. Now, obviously ACDC, when Bond passed away in sort of 1980, they were probably at an equivalent level of what you might think of say, listen, like thieves, that is that highway to hell come out. They had a hit with highway to hell. They were on the precipice. Now, Back then, pre-MTV, ACDC, you know, were a radio band, not so much a, a visuals or MTV wasn't, a, MTV wasn't around. Mm-hmm. So the listening audience probably didn't really see much of a difference between uh, Brian Johnson taking over with Back in Black and Bon Scott because they weren't like MTV, Michael Hutchins, a visual, you know, and I think that helped. Plus ACDC were at a level in their career where they were halfway through, whereas for InXS they really on the, Back chapter when Michael passed, so you are really trying to you know replace uh, an apple with an orange, which just was never going to fly. Unfortunately, yeah. Wouldn't, yeah. wouldn't have mattered. Wouldn't it if George Harrison, Paul McCartney, and Ringo Starr fronted the band; they still would have probably copped the backlash. Yeah,
4: it reminds this replacement reminds me a little bit more of Genesis. You know, when Phil Collins left and they hired. Ray, I think his last name was Smith, I can't remember, and they put out the Calling All Nations album, I think it was called, and it kind of, it bombed, unfortunately, and um, they just, that guy, that kind of no-name guy, was not going to be able to fill the shoes of Phil hmm. Collins any more than JD is going to be able to fill Michael Hutchins. Now, I think the difference between Brian filling Bonds and these is that well, number one, the songs were better, obviously, in Back in Black. And number two, I think, I think, one, you probably needed some more time. And I think you probably need to, I was going to bring this up later, but I think you have to manage expectations differently. I mean, you could hang on to J.D. Fortune if you want, but you're going to play theaters to about 500 people. Is it worth it to you to keep excess going and do it that way and hope mm-hmm. for the best? Or yeah. are you is that just not good enough and not worth the effort. And that's the question that bands like In Excess have to ask each other and they decided it wasn't, you know. And yeah. so which is interesting because then Gary goes off or John or Andrew and form their own bands and they're playing to even smaller groups, but I'm sure they're so rich and, you know, no famous that they it doesn't matter to them. It's just an outlet for fun and creativity. I'm, I'm yeah. assuming anyway.
1: Yeah, I think you make some good points. I think the earlier things about Genesis, well, it's interesting, you know, you, you had an earlier replacement of a lead singer and that was Peter Gabriel going and then they internally replaced the singer by pulling the drummer out and letting him sing. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, it, 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 I think uh, there's a certain sort of zeitgeist where ACDs were at that point where what's next, what's coming, and the songs of great, Mutt Lang, everything with the album, they weren't a visual band and music wasn't visual then you know, um, right. and uh, yeah, as I said, there's, there's almost the similarity of Bond and Brian for the naked ear in America who didn't quite associate the lead singer with the band. And they, they also had this other thing. They had a seven, second rock star. They had Angus. Yeah, <laughs> and I point. think, unfortunately, with Michael in, in excess, the five other band members, we know them to be valuable, but they didn't have, you know, An- Andrew, who you've interviewed, John, is shy and reserved and things like that, and he's not the flamboyant out there guy. Mm. Like if, if God forbid if Mick Jagger died, you still got Keith, you know. If, if Bonner goes, right. you got Edge. If you've got Ace, if you got bon- Brian Johnson, who went off, they still had Angus and sold yeah. tickets even without yeah. Brian,
4: you know. That is a genius point. I hadn't thought about that, but you're right. Yeah. There is no second banana in, yeah. in excess that might still compel yeah. people to come and see
1: them. I hadn't you thought. You argue that you could argue that Angus really is like ACDC yeah. over the journey. You're exactly right. Exactly yes. right. See, we so make. True
3: excellent points on this podcast already and it's, it's like 10 g- minutes yeah.
4: <laughs> so we say so we
3: say uh so just to take a step back i just want to ask hayden uh, especially what makes you a fan of in excesses music like what like what defines this band to help you say like i, I this I is think, one of my um, favorites
1: yeah yeah thank you um Michael articulated this really well. Um, Australian radio for many years uh, bucked the trend of what seemed to happen in America, and we weren't—we're not formatted stations here. There are certain radio stations in in Australia up until maybe the last ten years where um, you could listen, as Michael said, to Led Zeppelin and Aretha Franklin on the same dial, mm-hmm. and or Metallica and and the beatles on the same radio station we don't format things into classic rock country soul r b we had a, a you know smaller country we had less radio stations so there was an aggregation of music on the same channel and i think within excess they sort of with the sum of their parts and it's probably the the hidden genius of why i'd love them is that they can do you know soul like a never tear us apart they can do a, a blues thing like a you know a, a, a mystify. they can do a um uh, a Motown-type backbeat of a Disappear. Uh, they can do a funk of What You Need. They can do a heavy rock, you know, in some of their sort of louder tracks and things. So stylistically, they were sort of uh, encompassing all, frag- all, all factions of music that I liked. And they used to get, I guess, lambasted from the record companies and different people going, you're just you going too many different areas, especially with the Kick album that was sort of declined by Doug Morris at uh, Atlantic saying, here's a million to go re-record it. If you actually take away the commerciality of kicking for a moment, just look at the album. Mm-hmm. Media, it's a very weird song, you know. <laughs> Guns of the sky as an opener is a bit of a weird song, you know. Um uh Mystify, you know, coming then into Never Tear Us Apart Need You Tonight's a very weird song. They are quite weird, but they sort of so used to familiar in our ears, we see them as quite commercially, mm-hmm. you know, sort of soundy. But um they take a lot of left and right-hand turns on things that probably, you know, represent music overall. So, you know, I love Aretha Franco. I like Led Zeppelin. I like Metallica. So, in excess, you know, try and incorporate a, a blend and an amalgam of styles that I think until bands like The Killers and, and um, The Bravery and uh, yeah. Franz, Franz Ferdinand came around in the mid-2000s, you know, that was suddenly deemed to be acceptable. You could do dance, rock and go down a few different angles. So I think that's part of their legacy that's underrated. Yeah,
3: their versatility is—I uh, think—one of their strong suits. Like they could kind of do all these different styles and still be successful. And I think that's a testament to them. And I know what we're going to talk about this later. Is they're one of the few bands I could think of offhand that they can play on classic rock and new wave alterations, and you wouldn't think twice. And they have at least I would say double-digit number of songs that you could easily play and you're like, oh yeah, like that's a great song. That's a great song. And and they all sound so different. Like a lot of them, like. Yeah. Even I mean, like you get side-
1: surprising. Yes. Sorry. Sorry. We, we get a lot of people in Australia, you know, who who love In Excess still and everything there. But sometimes there's songs on there. You look at a song like To Look At You off uh, Shabu Shabar, which is a real sort of deep dive fan favorite. It, it's a very new romantic sound, but it doesn't sound like In Excess. Mm-hmm. And. There are a lot of people out there that go, I know that song. I know that song. I mean, David Wilde may have been on, I think, might have been on the Rock Solid podcast. And he said, I think, um, uh, uh, You know, that um, name escapes me, the fantastic host of Rock Solid Jump. Pat 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 Francis. Francis. Pat Francis, yeah. Yeah, he he said that, they've brought up In Excess, he goes, yeah, the one thing with In Excess is they're a really deep catalogue. They got like 20, 30 songs that is really underrated. And that's what I have found a little bit sort of mind-numbing is that they've actually had 18, 19 top 400 hits in America. Mm -hmm. But there's another 30 in Australia and other regions around the world. They've had 50 sort of top 40 hits across the planet and they've, they've serviced 50 countries, and there are hits in songs and countries which go back to their greatest hits that weren't hits in other countries where, you know, I think uh, back to ACDC, and we, we did an episode on We love ACDC down here, but I guarantee if you straw poll the average guy in the, in the in the, uh, the on the planet, they'll name you seven or eight ACDC songs. Mm-hmm. I guarantee the average fan won't know 20. I feel like
3: personally,
1: like for me, like in this decade, the
3: only band that rivals them in terms of the number of songs that like you could think of like this is U2. And and, and they were kind of like the rivals in many ways, even though Bono and Michael Hutchins were like best friends in real life, too. But I feel like they were like almost like the top two bands in terms of international success in Beyond America and Europe. And, yeah, you're absolutely right, Aiden.
1: You may have seen this, John, is that singles from bands up until maybe the late 70s, early 80s, were always deemed a bit of a sellout. A lot of bands wanted to release albums. Like Led Zeppelin's great songs weren't singles, Mm -hmm. but they're (laughs) iconic. Um, okay. Back in the early 80s, you know, the, the the record company saw singles as a way of advertising albums. That's what singles really are, what songs they're going to get on radio. So due you, and an were part of that era where you put out four, five, six singles per album. And they would chart depending on the country or the countries that, you know, maybe appealed to certain singles. So mm-hmm. it's interesting, you know, an album like Kick probably had, you know, five or six singles on it. Four were released in America, five or six were released elsewhere. So, um, you know, uh, welcome to wherever you are. You had not enough time. was the lead single in America, hit 28, but it was a B-side in Australia. You know, it's, it's weird how they did that, you know? Yeah. I have a question for you, Hayden. Um, is there – you would know better
4: than we would. Is, are there, is, is there anyone out there in Australia, I would assume, who lost interest in NXS in once they became popular? Is there anyone out there who's like, you know, what? I like the first two NXS albums. After that, they lost me because those well, first two albums felt like a completely different band.
1: Mm-hmm. So you talk about the first two, like it's yeah, like the, the names NXS yeah. and Underneath and, and the, underneath the Uh Look, I think there's there's probably more a shift where you've got the old rank and file. You know, I'm a Shibu Shabar, the swing guy, you know. And, mm. and then when they did the Chris Thomas years, the triumvirate of, uh, of Listen Like Thieves Kicking X, that was their international coming out, so to speak. Mm. So I think you probably, you know, the first two albums were what they would probably call their sophomore years, you know, just figuring yeah. a sound out. I think when Mark Opitz came in Shabu Shabar, that was the takeoff moment where everybody started to embrace them and they found their sexy, suave side and their funky side. And yeah. The bigger sound, yeah. so there's there's not so much a backlash on the first two. I think there are people who go who are uh, who grew up and really love Shabu Bar and the swing. And we all know when a, a band starts to make it internationally. Me, I fell on the side of proud, fantastic. Crocodile Dundee, we won the America's Cup, Greg Norman. You know, we, we were part of this Australian invasion overseas, men at work, you know, that were going global and we were not Austria, we were Australia. We were <laughs> we don't ride kangaroos down the main street and all this sort of cliche. Um, so, Nexus were really part of that 80s explosion. Um, but there's always those people who always feel like when a band transcends international borders, that, oh, they've, they've, they've gone from this cult, sort of, they're my secret. Mm-hmm. Now they're the world's oyster, you know. They're sold and, out. Yeah, oh. and they haven't really. They've just found a bigger audience. We all know right. that. Um, yeah. But I think the larger majority of people were very proud of them here because the toil and they knew their journey, what they did to a certain degree to make it out of Australia to begin with mm-hmm. and to then sort of climb where they were. And we've always, you know, even Canada, Canadian bands, you know this, John, and probably Nick as well, they've struggled to transcend down into America, you know, in terms of that distance <laughs> and travel. <laughs> And yet they're, you know, they're just a few feet away.
4: And for some reason, people think Canadian bands won't translate to America. Yeah. And they work hard too. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's so weird to me.
3: We did an episode on The Tragically Hip with John Mudford and Josh Fitzgerald. And that's a band that's like distinctively Canadian, but didn't really transcend to America. And it's like weird because you could think to yourself like a lot of their songs could easily play on alternative radio, but it didn't translate for them for some reason. So it's so strange sometimes how it works for certain artists and then some, Yeah, it, yeah. like it exists. I think
1: it's they like just, I think they fun. just were prepared to do the miles. I think, yeah, you know, that's probably um, it. That's- they just, they just did the miles. They just serviced it. And it's a bit different these days with, you know, digital platforms and things, but, they just played and played and played. And I think that was just sort of the the, the impetus, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think
3: something you said too, Hayden, that um, is interesting about them is that they are a very visual band. So I think them coming right at the uh, beginning of especially MTV really helps them because especially Michael, like performing on stage, like the camera loves him and mm-hmm. it's just, he's just magnetic to yeah. the audience. And like, you can't help but not watch him and I think part of it is almost like Duran Duran it's like they came at the right place the right time and Mm -hmm. then they just made a lot of great pop songs
1: yeah that's right and uh you know the look I I guess everything generationally changes and we may talk about this a little bit later when we hit the 90s but you know the 70s sort of as as you get a new decade it's interesting how things move and that MTV late 81 early 82 was a, a pivotal time for a lot of bands but I think they weren't stuck in that. They were able to sort of get through that era. There's a lot of, you know, bands maybe like A Flock of Seagulls and, you know, uh, mm-hmm. ABC and that were really caught up in 81 to 84 but never really could play live to the level and did the yards and had substance, you know. Um, yeah. And no criticism to them, but, y- you know, you have to be able to play live, I think, to survive longer as any type of band, you know. Mm-hmm.
4: Absolutely. You actually, if I could piggyback on that comment, this – Maybe I'm jumping the gun on this, Nick. I'm just gonna go for it anyway. You actually said something in your intro that makes me bristle a little bit when other people say it and they refer to them as an 80s band. Because to me they were I I feel like that's a severely unfair criticism. Not that you were making this criticism. Oh, I'm sure yeah. you meant they were one of the biggest bands of the 80s, which they were. Yeah. Now yeah. you but, did mention 90s as well, but I do agree yes, with what you're saying, true. John. Yeah, yeah. I feel like critically, too many people box them in as an 80s band as something yeah. that could all, like flock of seagulls or you know to some degree duran duran a band of its time that made sense in the 80s that isn't necessarily timeless and yeah. i couldn't disagree more about a, a, a label like that on a band like in well, to me, uh, whatever NXS is yeah. doing is the most timeless rock and roll there is. Yes, and so well, I, I bristle yeah. whenever anyone says that. A well, it, it was now.
1: probably part. There's, there's there's a couple of things that motivated me to start a podcast, and I and I, without um, uh, you know, uh, sycophantically praising you, John, I, I must say yourself and, and probably Pat Francis, um, you know, really motivated me to think that I could do a podcast, and I I do want to say really a genuine thank you to you because. You, you, the way you do your podcast and the way you honestly share, you know, I hope people are listening to this and show vulnerability made me feel like that, it's okay if I put it out there and I only get X amount of listeners because it serves a a need. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it gave me a sense of belief that it could happen. And um, uh, so I thank you for that. And again, I I really, you know, thank you for the almost the mentorship and guidance you've showed me like I put in a mission statement at the start of every episode because you, you, you suggested, you know, and so things like that are really helpful. Secondly, I, I also thought that, as much as I loved Excess and things like that, I felt like the podcasts out there just seemed to represent kick. And I felt like it was just not doing a legacy to the band's catalogue. Um, I felt like that uh, it's lazy journalism for a lot of scribes to turn around and just say, oh, 80s band or whatever. So... Part of the, 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 the podcast series is to do a sort of a, an A to Z chronological process of 1977 to 2012 and beyond of their recording, releasing, live, whatever career and have it as a time capsule. Uh, because, you know, if we look at 1990, well, you know, they had two or three top ten hits in America. That's 1990. 1991. they sold out Wembley. 1991, they had a platinum live album in America, and they had number one album in the UK in 92 with Welcome. You know, they, up until 94, were really a, a significant player in the world's face. Did sales drop off and things decline after that? Absolutely. But, you know, if TV shows and, and movies now are using their material all the time. A bit like Kate Bush this week, she's getting a lot of recognition for Running Up That Hill, a 1985 song that was a middling hit. Well, great music is getting a rebirth in a lot of TV shows now and, and movies because it is timeless. And where are the rock bands now, you know, you know the, the Slits or the Greta Van Fleet or whatever? But, you know, unfortunately rock is becoming almost a relic and yeah. they are going back to go forward. Um, but maybe appreciation comes in time. Yeah.
3: Definitely. So. And I did mean that too, by way, I like one of the biggest bands of the 80s I know 80s. you did. <laughs> yeah. We would never wasn't want to... I was saying
4: make... you... No, I know. I wasn't saying you say that, but I, some people do yes. categorize them that way. And I just have to put a stop to it because it, I feel passionately against it. Yeah. Oh,
3: absolutely. Because I think a lot of times it's like he's like Peyton said, like lazy journalism. But it's also it's a lot of people tend to try to put people into certain genres or certain like characteristics or you know what I mean? And like, it annoys me too. Cause it's like, we did episode on Kate Bush. She's impossible to actually categorize. And like, yeah. she's just a, a, a an originator and like a trendsetter yes. and an iconolist. Yes. Like it's hard. Like that's how I feel about an excess in a weird way. It's like, they just feel like a band that there's no one that sounds like them. They have a distinctive sound, but also yeah. even the way they write songs. And I think that's what I want to talk to you guys about later in the episodes, their songwriting, which I think their process is absolutely fascinating. Fascinating, And they don't get enough um, credit for that. I did want to talk about the band's formation to move to talk about like the history of the band. Uh, they formed in 1977 in Sydney, New South Wales in Australia. Right. Right. Yeah. Even? Okay. Yeah. And, then the, uh, and then can you tell us a little bit about like how the band got together? Because
1: I feel like you could contextualise it way better than I ever could. That's fine. Yeah, for sure. Look, uh, Gary Beers uh, posted yesterday on Facebook. He actually went to the Palladium, I think, in LA. He went to see Midnight Oil there. And he was with, I think, Toby ran uh, from his band and things. But um, they basically, along with Midnight Oil, started from the northern beaches of Sydney and supported Midnight Oil on a a few gigs. They were called the Farris Brothers. Uh, The ex-manager of Midnight Oil Uh, saw an ad on TV for iXL Jam and he sort of played around with the logo and he thought of the XTC band and then iXL and then came up with this sort of stoner-type creative genius idea of InXS. And if we think back to that era, you had REM and U2 and InXS and XTC, often for posters and for branding and badges and flies on cars to go to our gigs, having a snappy acronym-type Dan Notion, uh, OMD, or whatever's another one. Were very uh, in at that time, and uh, yeah, so they they sort of for seventy-seven to eighty did a lot of touring. They did a lot of the outback, you know, mines and 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 really roughed and tumbled it. And it was only it was three years into that time they then went and recorded. So yeah. they sort of honed seven eight hundred gigs before they did their first album uh, in those early days.
4: I got to say one thing, Hayden, I was going to bring this up. In high school, it was one of my favorite discoveries that if you wrote the letters in excess in kind of box letters on top of each other, it looks like a union jack. And so right. <laughs> I, okay. I, used hey. to, I used to put that on my notebooks, you know, I write tried in it excess. The yeah. yeah. And then you write in excess, if you try it sometime, in box letters and you come out with the... Union Jack, and I was always yeah. so proud of myself.
1: For yeah, it. but, you know, I know Kirk, who we interviewed, he said, look, you know, back in the early days, and they put flies on cars in the area about a gig coming up, you know, having a snappy sort of punchy name uh, that was easy, uh, well, easy to write, but people equally were like, inks, inks, mm-hmm. inks, you know, um, uh, became one of those things, yeah. Yeah. No,
3: I have a question for you. So they formed the band essentially because Andrew Ferris and Mike Hutchins were friends in high school. But then to clarify, did they have two different bands or did another yeah, band absorb yeah, it? There was that? a band,
1: there's a band Dr Dolphin which uh, a couple of the, the band members are in and then Andrew and uh uh, Michael became friends over an altercation at school, and Andrew wrote poetry. And sorry, Michael wrote poetry, and Andrew was sort of quite besotted by this kid who just come back from Hong Kong for a couple of years. And um, and they sort of joined forces, I guess, in terms because of, of the three brothers. And uh, I think uh, you know, obviously in the family, they would play and practice in the garage. And then one day, Michael, who was friends with Andrew, they said, "Why don't you get up and sing?" Um, of which that happened. And then they got Gary in a little bit later because he was a one year old. And had the van, uh, had mm-hmm. had the van to be able to take the equipment, and he could he learned bass. Um, so it was sort of quite an organic thing. Three brothers and sort of three friends. Tim and Tim and Kirk were were, were good buddies and friends in science class. And I think one, he, I think Tim had walked past or Kirk had walked past and seen Tim drawing a guitar on his pencil case, and that struck up a conversation mm-hmm. to which uh, led to music. So, um, but yeah, they were all sort of pretty much t- together there and. Um, we just recently did a little two-year anniversary of our podcast and we did a northern beaches trip up the coast and we went to where their high school was we went to the house where the Ferris brothers uh grew up and rehearsed. We knocked on the door and the lady had covid. She couldn't let us in. She's like, "Oh, it's so great." And we had 20, 30 people on the lawn out at the front saying, "Hello." That's we went great. to where they we that's went awesome. to where they filmed the film clip for Stay Young on the beach and we we've, <laughs> we've got a video coming out. We've got it all filmed. We'll send it out to you. But oh, please we do. did a oh, we did a retrospective. It. Yeah. Yeah. It was a lot of fun.
3: That's Good. incredible. Oh, so I had a question for you, hated, cuz I did I've always been curious how did they get the deep in excess?
1: Well, uh, yeah. Look, as I said, the uh, the manager of Midnight Oil, who was going through a bit of a religious sort of uh, 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 sort of uh, you know awareness or awakening. Um, was you know partaking in a few of the medicinal sort of Bill Maher substances, you know, uh, and uh, he was seeing an ad on TV, which was a jam ad, and then he he liked it XTC and then IXL, and then he he formulated just just this composite of initials and sketches, maybe a bit like John's Union Jack, <laughs> and then came up with NXS uh, instead of the Ferris brothers. So that that was sort of the sort of the genesis. There.
3: That's very interesting because I I had a friend. This is really funny when it was they were playing on the car about oh my god like 10 12 years ago he thought it, he spelled it out like n i x S and I'm like it's in excess. Like why? Like why would you think that? He was saying like oh it's like REM, And I'm like no, it's like you, it, it well, it's, means it's, like it's really funny. Excess. say REM. There's,
1: yeah, there's a, there's a lovely tribute from Michael Stipe to Michael and the band about three years ago. Mike Michael Stipe, I think he's in England promoting the greatest hits or the 30th anniversary of something, and he was talking a bit about Michael Hutchinson. in the interview. And it goes for about 90 seconds, and he said, oh I learned a lot from Michael. His vocal technique, you know, he, he was more daring than people gave him credit for. You know, and, and Stipe himself was saying about Hutchins, he said, look, a song like Strange Currencies, mm. there's a middle eight in that I took straight off an Inexcess song, the way you do your middle eights. And then the vocal daringness to go soulful was something I never tried, but Michael would do things like that. And mm. I think Michael suffered a little bit from the Brad Pitt syndrome. I think people these days realise Brad Pitt's a great actor, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and he got his Academy Award for, you know, the the, the Tarantino movie. Mm-hmm. But I think Michael suffered a bit. And I remember this horrible review one time that a, a very sarcastic journalist said in the year 2000 that, "Oh yeah, Michael's sort of the Keanu Reeves of rock and roll, sort of the movie hero we need, but not quite a great actor or mm. whatever." And it really bristled me. Um, me and if Michael, if Michael looked a little bit like, um, um, you know, uh, Mick Jones from the Clash, they probably would have had more street cred. Oh. You know what I mean? I, everything you're saying, I do
4: not understand. Yeah. I mean, I I think Michael is the to, in the top three greatest front men of all time. Freddie Mercury, Mick Jagger, and Michael Hutchins. I don't think that's even arguable. And mm. and I, this is going back to what I was saying earlier. I feel like they get knocked down a peg or two because what they do seems almost effortless if it was that easy to write rock songs that are poppy and funky and dancey, everyone would do it and they don't. And yet in mm-hmm. excess can do it every time out on yeah. every album, every yeah. song, Do mm-hmm. you know, how, Im- how impossible that is. You know, it just, it chaps my hide so greatly. This is not some flash in the pan, some, you know, yeah. stuck I, to I one think- genre. This, they are <laughs> They are
1: eternal, and it, and it drives me nuts that nobody can see that. Ricky Gervais, one of my heroes uh, in the show Extras, was had that famous episode with David Bowie, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, little fat man. You know? <laughs> uh, anyway, he he was saying you know in pre-production about writing a song, and you know, uh, Ricky says to to David, "Oh, if you could do something like a Life in Mars, you know, Starman, blah blah." He goes, "Yeah, right." F and L, yeah, that's all right, Ricky. I'll just go off in two hours and write another Life in Mars. Yeah, right. Good on you. <laughs> he, he put songwriting in perspective with that comment. Yeah, I'll just roll one of those out for you in the next hour. No problems. I'll do it over lunch. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. So it's not easy. Yeah. No.
3: <laughs> no, not at all. So when did an XS start playing their first shows, Eden?
1: Well, oh, look, I think the the famous one is it uh on uh Tim's 21st. Oh, Tim's, Tim's 20, it might have been 21st that they were at, um, but it was on Tim's birthday, it might have been 19 or 20 himself. They did a sort of a gig for friends and family and a few different things there. But I'd probably say towards later 77, 78 is when they got out and just started as the Ferris Brothers and playing. They played, you know, their own stuff and then they played – Everything from you know Roxy Music to the Doobie Brothers, uh, I think Miss Shapiro. You know they mm. they did quite a few covers, and there's a there's a good compilation album called "Stay Young" where it records a bunch of stuff live they did in that day that mm. paid homage to sort of influences plus their own material. Mm.
3: And then they got their first record deal in 1980, right? With Deluxe? Yeah, with
1: Records. the label called Deluxe. I think a gentleman there by Michael Browning uh, was involved with that label uh, there. And um, they had, uh, you know, I think a 10, 11 track debut, I think 10 track debut. On. A strong release, very sort of, uh, it's got a very British sort of scar, you know, Most madness. Kind of yeah, they're, they're fine. Brief. They're figuring their sand out and stuff like that. Um, you know, it's a very much a sort of a you know a, a freshman type, uh, if I can use an American term, a freshman type approach, and mm-hmm. uh, then they've they you know literally a year later, and you know it was like in those days, John bands go going every nine, 12 months and do another album, but you know the and they record them a lot of them overnight whilst touring and things, um, but you know I think it was just uh, you know with Chris who got involved with the band. You know, in around 1982, I think or 8182 there, and then decided to get them to WA WEA or Warners. Mm-hmm. and got Mark Opitz in, which literally just to do one song or one or two songs. That was the one thing, and then it led to uh, I think Johnson's Aeroplane and one or two others. But they were like, "Why don't you do the album?" And then you know, Don't Change came to look at you all these other ones came in so it was a bit of a game changer that album there and 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 they did something that the Aussie bands didn't do there we had bands like the angels and and probably even icehouse Then to a lesser degree and Uta Gurus and midnight you know, all but they decided to bunker up and go to america and just tour it and <laughs> hence the uh, go to the us the big festival there, they got a, got a, a Guernsey there in 83 there. The, that was the festival he put together, oh, with others. Oh, us Festival. Yeah, they were on one of the days. There was a metal day on day two. There, there was a pop, a uh, new wave band one day and then rock bands on another. But that was significant. And
3: I think something I want to just contextualise for a second with this band at this moment in time is that they're all like teenagers. Like they're 19... 18 19 20 21 years old they're very young too even like their first few albums which were I think we'll we'll be honest like they were just kind of developing their sound they weren't really that big of successes but these are very young guys to do what they were doing so I give them a lot of credit for that and I think that's something that Okay. Well,
1: you're right. You, so. It's a really good point. I mean, you, you, you know, let's let's look at the third album, okay? So you got uh, let's let's look at the three big big known songs off that, which is the one thing don't change and to look at you, and probably black and white was a, a fourth hit down here. Uh, Michael was 21. Uh, the album got released, I think, in his 22nd year. Uh, and Andrew was 22, turning 23. Uh, Gar- uh, John was nine. Uh, was 20. Uh, turning 21. I mean, there are boy bands that are 29 years old, uh, you know, acting like they're 18. So you're right, they are young, even in the kick era, you know, they were 26, 27, you know, when that broke. So, you know, the, a bit like the Beatles in a way, and I'm not trying to compare them, but the amount of material that between sort of 82 and 87 they came up with that in those young years was pretty impressive, especially when you add in the burden of touring because that can be a real creative uh, drainer for for the artistic you know, drive, but mm-hmm. you know, they were young and they're living together. And I think if you look at the credits on their albums, you can tell when they stopped living with each other, because you then saw co-writes that didn't exist anymore mm-hmm. around. Listen, like Thieves time, it became more of a, a Michael Andrew partnership because mm-hmm. they weren't living together anymore. Fascinating. That is. I was curious.
4: Um, I had a question for you too, Hayden. We're just going to ask all our Australian questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You. I, I've always felt like bands like in excess midnight oil, You mentioned hoodoo gurus, even pseudo echo to some degree. There are Australian bands that have a knack for this kind of, like we were saying, rock pop, but with some grit, and they have a they have a an attention to the grit that America doesn't have, and certainly the UK doesn't have. Yeah, and I and Angels are like that, cold chiseled to some degree. 100 percent. What is it that? Where does that come from? And and are we? Am I am I am I hearing correctly? I mean, do you guys know that that's a
1: part of Australian
4: well, rock and roll? Well, it's
1: it's a simple thing. If you can't play it live, you're not rated. Mm. You know, we're not into we've never we've been in a country that was built and we still are on pubs. You know, we're we're we convicts from the descent in English days. Yeah. So the local pub at the end of the street, or the pub culture probably emanate from the English roots. Yeah. But to for bands to succeed, and and back in the non-internet days and mobile phone and social media and and Minecraft days, you're 18. Yeah. If you were 16, 17, 18, you try to get to the pub, have a beer, and see a band. Yeah. And bands would play six, seven, eight nights a week. Bands would like NXS, would play nine concerts a week because they'd play two in one night. Mm. So it was the entertainment principle of things. And if you couldn't get up and play your guitar. Play your instruments, you know. People would boo you down, and they'd throw things at you. <laughs> um, and the mini series is even exist playing in front of um, outback areas. I mean, we're, we're a tough critic or a tough audience here. You know, that's probably where that comes from. So you've got to be the real deal. Mm-hmm. Um, the difference why, and, and I think the melody and the ability to play rock in different styles comes from the influences of less radio stations and, and more content of a variety on each station. So a band like Chisel or Pseudo Echo or Inexcess, your other bands similarly would do a ballad, a rock, a, a you know, a Motown, a, a, a blues track, a soul track. A metal track, or whatever it might be, they had that variety because of the radio, less stations, and you'd hear more. We'd, we'd, we'd get everything here from America and England, yeah, but it'd be all on the same stations,
4: yeah. It's it funny, just seems like none of those bands I listed, Hunters and Collectors, is another one, none yeah. of those bands could have come from anywhere but Australia, for whatever Yeah, it. I just and, wonder and, what's and, in the and,
1: water that makes Yeah, sense. and look, some of the bands didn't transient overseas. They went over like Hunters and Collectors and Chisel and things because maybe there was an idiosyncratic nature of things being a little bit too Australian in their lyrics, mm. a little bit too Australian in, in their messaging and things. And, you know, we've got our own version of, of Bob Dylan here, a guy called Paul Kelly. I love now, Paul Kelly. Now, Paul Kelly has a song here in Australia that maybe your listeners can download. It's called How to Make Gravy. (laughs) I love that. Right. Now, this is a song about a guy in jail, you know, and he's ringing his family about he's going to be stuck in jail for Christmas. This is a lyric to Die For. You know, Bob Dylan would curl over in his future grave if he heard it, but this song transcends everything, and and it should have been a global hit. Um, But sometimes certain songs and tones of voice are a bit idiosyncratic to us, but... I also think a good song is a good song, and if you go sell it door-to-door often enough, mm-hmm. you can tear down the barriers a little bit, and I think that's why there was a huge pride in me with In Excess, because I felt like they just did that extra bit that other bands weren't prepared to do. Mm-hmm. They never got anything easy. You know, they had to tour every album. The one album they didn't tour, well, I did Four Million, but it was probably their Acton Baby, but didn't quite get the – the commercial, and this is an interesting thing, you know, NXS's later albums, you could argue, are more artistically creative and credible than maybe some of their highest selling albums. And this is an interesting argument when it comes to bands and things. The Beatles were lucky. They they brought out, you know, Sgt Pepper's The White Album and Abbey Road and Let It Be after they stopped touring, but they, they were in that zeitgeist, and NXS never got that second bite of the cherry in the zeitgeist. Yeah. Green Day got Dookie and the Green Day got you know American Idiot in the Zeitgeist. You two got Joshua Tree and then they got Acton Baby in the second zeitgeist. You know, the Chili Peppers, they got, you know, um, you know, Californication, then they got uh 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 like sugar, on my sugar yeah. sex magic. Yeah, blood like sugar magic, you know. Yeah. You know, they got the two in the zeitgeist, you know? Again, and, so true. And and and, and I said this to Andrew in our interview, and, and he was sort of sort of almost apologising to me that I felt that way, uh, and I said no, it's just I always felt you know that um, part of our sort of subtle push or direct push is that I think if Inexus had some American passports or you know a little more locally, um, if they if they probably. I mean, Duran Duran are playing the game. They they, 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 To their credit, they're releasing material. They've got a live band. They've got most of their original members now. Um, they, they inducted Roxy Music. They're playing the Hall of Fame game, and that's all helping. But, you know, there's not a cheerleader in America for them. For any- As you say that,
3: there. I'm watching. I, it's funny that you say it because I actually wore the 2019 Rocker Hall of Fame uh, induction Ceremony shirt because that's where Duran Duran inducted uh, rocks to be sick as a tribute to John because we got them into the
1: car fame. Right. Um, we did. So it was <laughs> um, no, Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, these things have to have an impetus. Yeah, they do. And, and I and I believe, you know, people go back, well, it's the politicking behind the scenes with that. But I have no doubt, John, what you've done with Duran Duran and other artists and giving attention. I mean, you know, look at a Go Go's documentary, suddenly a year later, they're in, you know, Joan Jett, yep. who really has never really released one hit single that she wrote. They're all covers. Mm -hmm. You know, they had, you know, documentaries on them and, you know, movies come out. I mean, it just starts with a bit of a voice and a conversation and you know what it's like. It's very politicky, but, you know, if we can arouse attention, that's our... That's it. That's a sub-job, I guess. Of some, exactly. Here's the
3: thing, though, Aiden. You need to sometimes give people reminders of why these people are special. It's not that, like, because some people say, oh, it's, like, a cheap way to get an induction or a nomination. I think it's fair game because sometimes you don't think about, say, the Go-Go. So there's a perfect example. Like, you haven't really heard any Go-Go's music in how many years, but that documentary came out, and it kind of mm-hmm. gave this critical reappraisal of their work and then it led to them get into the rock hall and also they were very big like critics of the rock hall like they weren't in because they were eligible i think for 15 years or so
1: uh before they got in i remember that fantastic movie the wedding singer Mm-hmm. It was that is a great time, movie. <laughs> it was the first time, yeah. You know, well, you know, anytime says, stop wearing my Van Halen t-shirt, You'll of the band. You know, yeah. you know, it was a movie that, you know what, when we saw it in '97, we were able to laugh at the 90s. We had enough time to get over them, or the 80s, I should say, a bit of time to get over them and re-appreciate from what they were. And sometimes music's a bit like that. You know, the grunge movement, probably heard in excess, you know, the Britpop movement, things move on and, and everyone gets older. People have babies, get jobs, they stop buying tickets, they stop being fans. You know this, John, through various artists and things you've, you've interviewed who, you know, I, I really love your interview with John Waite, um, who's one of the great voices in rock but you know you hear him he's, so, he's not dismissive of visit at a time or missing you but he's so into these other songs and he feels creatively like they, they represent him now and I think sometimes that You know True fans support And listen to everything Throughout And fickle fans go Oh yeah They're not as good As the old days But they probably Haven't listened To the new days Right
4: Right <laughs> Yeah, It's a shame That the Mystify Documentary Didn't have that effect Or maybe it still will I don't know See but yeah, Here's the thing do. I
3: think it could Because like Even the Nina Simone Documentary That was three or four years Before she got inducted Into the mm-hmm. rock hall And someone was on the committee That actually wrote the book That was the basis for yeah. That so sometimes yeah. things take a little bit of time, but I think also like Duran Duran and Depeche Mode and the Cure, they all they all kind of have to get in too mm-hmm. before someone like excess who I think we'll talk about this much later. Like they're in the conversation now. Like there's almost like I think the other
1: I think the I think the the uh part of you know that getting too subtext or whatever, but you know, Duran Jaran Depeche mode are a genre of bands to a certain degree. If you you know Depeche Mode mode represent, oh, we've got to get a dance um techno sort of type of thing in. You know, the uh the push to get in um every single every year for Shaka Khan or Tina Turner, there's this push to get certain genres in. Nine Inch Nails or, you know, let's get on that band in or we need to get a 70s band in. They really are, it's very much like um, that's the push. In excess of this weird weird creature that aren't sort of 80s, aren't 90s, aren't 70s, there's this amalgam of styles and they, I think there's a confusion. But, <laughs> I think remind- anything can... Yeah, yeah,
3: they remind me of Sorry. Billy Idol in a weird way, like they're in a, in a strange way because they're both like classic rock, new wave, alternative. Like, you don't have how to pigeonhole, but they also have that longevity, too. Mm-hmm. I always see that similarity, at least between Idol and In Excess, which I don't know. Maybe I'm like way off
4: the mark. <laughs> I can see some, I can kind of see your reasoning on that.
1: There's a method to the baddest sometimes. <laughs> um, what's yeah, on- it's 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 a weird thing. You know, if they were in America and, you know, Andrew was doing interviews every so often and here and there and they were just in the consciousness, but th- th- there's not a PR campaign for them. Um, to close it off a little bit on that matter, Tim has said the band need to do a documentary, they need to update and really sort of try and do something, you know, that brings... You know, just chronicles the career, not for the purposes of, of induction. Um, he he couldn't give two tosses about it. Although I did say to him, "Oh, you know, Def Leppard got in. You know, the Kill got in." He goes, "The killer? we bigger than them in America." <laughs> so, so I think it did ruffle his feathers a little bit because they're yeah, you on know, the shirt too. Because I saw yeah. that it its that club that you don't want to be in because you're too cool. But if you're in the club, you want to be in the club. Right. Right. <laughs> I, mean, I had thought of it before, there. though. You're so right, Hayden. They need that second
4: zeitgeist moment, whether it's yeah. a song on Stranger Things that suddenly brings Kate Bush yeah, to awareness, yeah. or the documentary on Showtime, or whatever it is. They're just desperate for that. We're all starving for a second in excess zeitgeist moment.
1: Yeah, we. I think there's this I think the one one would, if I can use a golfing term, is that the the great thing that stands the test of time is the songs. They're not dated. They don't have sonics that are very littered in a certain sort of synth era or whatever they are. But, you know, certain songs can sound fresh now. I mean, there's the odd song that's a bit dated, like Send a Message, but the songs do stand up and sound fresh Mm -hmm. as they were recorded. And I think that's a testimony to, you know, like the Beatles and, you know, uh, Even You two and certain bands, they still stack up. And Mm -hmm. that's all you got at the end of the day is your songs. Agreed. Everyone.
3: that's actually going to segue to the next question I was going to ask you guys is um, how would you describe their sound and which artists do you think they drew inspiration from to create their music?
1: I'll let you go, John. I'll yeah. probably hold for a moment. You
4: got first. <laughs> well, to me, they're just like a modern update of the stones. I mean, I feel like yes. you, take, you take the stones and you factor in where the stones were influenced by blues. Mm-hmm. Imagine if the stones had been influenced by funk. And that to me is kind of what the, the bedrock of the is. You have the technological tools that were available in the 80s with some synthesizers and some you know, big drums and some great guitar riffs and stuff like that. And they incorporated all of those things. But like Hayden said, not in a way that sounds dated or genre-specific or anything like that. But they used the tools that were available at that time to enhance and embellish the bedrock of their sound, which was a funkier uh, Rolling Stones. That's what I think of when I think of it. Yeah.
1: I think that if I think back to the bands that uh, influenced Tim and uh, Andrew and some of the stuff in the early days – Roxy music were a big influence and you've got the saxophone part of Kirk. Mm -hmm. Um, they are a six-piece, which opens up a few different sort of sounds and sonics and things. Uh, The Clash, you know, were a big band, the angsty sort of stuff there, the Stones particularly, the Doors, Mm -hmm. you know, a little bit with Michael there. Mm -hmm. Um, And you're right. I think that's a really good point, John, about, you know, you've got the modern-day more, the tools to use, Mm -hmm. the influences. um, And I think what they had was a courage or a courageousness not to be limited to a sound. Mm-hmm. They were they were comfortable putting on, you know. We might do a, a, an episode on t- a talk about one two punches of completely diametrical different songs after each other. I mean, you know, they they weren't afraid to sequence albums that would take you on tours of left right and everywhere. Yeah, they and they just didn't. They they owned their they what they did also too, which protected the integrity of things. They owned their own. Tapes and recordings and production costs. They got their own studios. When they had enough cash, they put money into that. So they weren't beholden to the record company to tell them what to record and having A&R guys going and going, yeah, just move the chorus here and change that word around. They weren't beholden to that interference. Interesting. I think what was
3: really interesting about the mystified documentary, which I watched last night, finally, I
1: felt held
3: off watching this movie until last night for whatever reason in my life. But I thought what was really fascinating about their process is that when Michael especially would write the songs with Andrew, they would, he would also think about the melodies, which I think is pretty rare. You don't hear too many songwriters that also think of the music components of the songs. Yeah. Usually, like, in Squeeze, one writes the, the songs, the other writes the music. And even, yeah. like, um, Elton John and Bernie uh, Toplin, like, there's, like, those partnerships. But I think it's fascinating yes. that especially Michael, it seems, thought of both. And I think that's
1: very yeah. special. So... Well, it is because I think Andrew has gone on record a lot of times. Said, "Well, look, Michael didn't really play an instrument. His voice was the instrument. But but Michael could, you know, could almost write a chorus or a melody or add a tune to things or put a lyrical phrasing to things that helped, you know, Andrew in and the songwriting craft. Um, and I did quite appreciate how much I think Andrew relied on Michael until after Michael passed. And, and Andrew really, despite the genius it is, I think undervalues his own lyric writing despite the fact we think he's a great lyricist. But Mm -hmm. when you go back there, you know, Andrew took a long time to sort of, you know, dust off the the coattails and start writing again. And hence he, you know, paired up with Guy Chambers and Mm -hmm. uh, the guy from the New Radicals, uh, Greg Alexander, who's a great songwriter and a a few others. Um, Just to sort of have a person to bounce off, I think, um, for for, for lyrics and things. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think, the lyrical stuff that Michael brought in. I mean, you know, Andrew turns up in Hong Kong with his tape. Michael goes away 10 minutes later. He's got Need You Tonight. You know, it was yeah. it. Was it. Yeah. And the thing too is, Hayden, like, especially a song
3: like Need You Tonight, it's so weird, like, lyrically and musically. Like, it, it shouldn't work almost, but it does. And, I, and that's what I thought was so interesting about that creative process, especially with Michael. It just, it boggles my mind because...
4: It's interesting because there are songs that come along that don't sound like anything you've ever heard before. Mm -hmm. And people respond in two different ways. They either respond in a way that's slightly off-putting, like that's just a little too weird for me. And all that stuff gets relegated to probably alternative radio, or they hear something that's like, I've never heard that before. And that is amazing, you know? And then it can transfer over to pop radio. And uh, this song as strange and unique as it was, captured the imaginations of people that songs from Squeeze or Echo and the Buddy Men, or even some Duran Duran tracks, deeper tracks weren't, wasn't capturing that imagination. But Need You Tonight did it, you know? And yeah. uh, thankfully it, it caught the people at the right time in the right frame of mind to
1: provoke them rather, rather than repel them. I yes. think a band gets that sort of, you know, in soccer terms, that they're the striker, they got the ball, the crowd are watching, you've got the goalkeeper there. Can you hit the ball on the back of the onion bag? Mm. And they were at that precipice with what? With uh, Listen Like These, which had sold, you know, a couple of times platinum there, and it was there again, probably their, you know, their sophomore release over there that had done well, and, and the world were watching, the record company were watching, and then... I think a lot goes to Richard Lowenstein's film clip, a lot goes to Nick Egan's art cover uh, where they got Michael up front and centre. It was a real composite of song meets uh, promotional video, meets album cover coming across the screen, Um, the innovation of it. And so the song had this unique sound to it that, you know, John, when a a band comes out, it's always, what's that first song off the album going to be? It's going to set the tone of the album, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And it's going to, generally speaking, as a a critic, you're going to review, has this band music developed, have they developed musically in the last two years since the last recording? Mm -hmm. So you compare something like Need You Tonight to something of, you know, um, Listen Like This, it was a musical jump. Mm -hmm. And so all these things sort of paved together and, um, you know, and then you throw in the live, live ability and, you know, they had a real negative that the record company didn't want to release the album. They didn't want to support them. And so Chris just got them into the colleges and the college circuit, which were good to them and, good to Australian bands where the younger people were listening. France were good to them in terms of making it a hit. They played colleges and campuses, and ended up in, you know, stadiums at the end of the tour. So they worked it. They are yeah. they humble enough to work it from humble beginnings.
3: Hope the listeners check out your uh, podcast. Thank you for uh, letting us know about that. John, where could they find your legendary podcast? <laughs>
4: that's so funny uh it's called the hustle um i we have a lot of mutual friends so i i think at this point people have either decided they like it and they want to listen to it or they don't like it and they don't want to listen to it but if you're new to it look for the hustle and go into the archives because chances are pretty good we've talked to somebody that will capture your attention
3: the, the amount of i always say this every time i talk to john but the amount of guess that he guess it's insane. Like, like, like the legends that you get. So I'm jealous, but I'm also so excited for you. And like, you. I, I I
1: love the, sorry, if I could ask you, I, I love the, we had youth on the other week because um, as you probably know, you know, with Crowded House, he, that was one of his first projects and then he worked with Midnight Oil down here mm-hmm. and he wrote Sunshine on a Rainy Day that he gave coverage to, which is still one of you my send favorite. You me the link and I haven't had a chance to watch it yet. Right. Yeah. Right. So that was a hit in Australia, you know, not long after it was there. And I didn't ever associate with his, ex-wife, you know, yeah, and yeah. I didn't quite the history of the origin of the song. I'm so glad you asked him and yeah. I was playing that song every day. Now I love the Zoe version better and mm-hmm. it's such a non, you, it's, it's such a non, um, uh, uh, <coughs> what's the, <laughs> the band he was in again? <laughs> uh, killing Joke. Killing Joke. Yeah. It's such a non-killing yeah. joke song, yeah. you know, uh, but he must have been a real happy, lovey way to write that. And it's a killer lyric, killer sentiment and, Um, I've never
4: heard that song in the States. I only know it because I lived in England briefly in 1991 and it was a big hit hit. hit. over there. Otherwise, I would never know that song.
1: But that's the nuggets that your show delivers on that I really, really, really enjoy. And, you know, I could go on Uh, for hours about your Ivor Davies one and Nice House and um, Simple Minds and things. So he's a great guy, Ivor Davies. He's a real generous interviewee, I think. Yeah, I liked him a lot.
3: Yeah, kidnap. I recommend John's podcast enough. It's really, it's really among the ones guys. that I listen to all the time. Of course you guys can follow me at Nick D. Bam back on Twitter. And of course you can follow the uh, podcast Twitter account, which is at rock and retro pod. Leave us a review on Apple podcasts. We need reviews for people to help discover the show and the great content we, we produce just like this episode. Uh, thank you so much for our listeners, by the way, because this is the one year anniversary of the podcast episode. So Thank you, guys. for Congratulations, the Nick.
1: Well done. Oh,
3: thank you. Uh, just thank you for all the support, the emails, the uh, messages. Uh, really appreciate it. Uh, thank you, John. Thank you, Hayden, for coming on the show. And we'll talk to you guys later.
0: I'm Hi, this is Katie from England. You
1: know, it's Paul from Sydney. Hi, this is Ella from the Netherlands. This is Dr. Jim, and that's a wrap. Right, B, that was a wrap. Um, I guess this is probably the second time you've heard from Nick now, and the little sample there uh, of some of the stuff we we went through. Um, I guess you weren't involved specifically in it, but, you know, I think you sort of enjoyed our podcast getting represented in another sort of country's uh, uh, backyard and also via their platform, I guess.
0: For the listeners, I think they they'll actually get quite a a lot of information. You you've like done a complete snapshot of um our two years all in one
2: podcast. <laughs> I yes. felt
0: um it was quite interesting for me to um hear you ramble on and uh, hear the guys um pitch in as well. But it was brilliant. I really think his questioning was really good. Um yeah. and yeah, it's well worth if you um want to go to our link, you can go. Straight over to um, Rock in Retro and um, hear the the uh, the continuation of yes. the uh,
1: of the interview. Yeah, and because look, we, you know the time you know this going out, we've got uh, which leads us into the next thing. We've we've got some very exciting interviews that we were going to be doing and recording last week and early this week, but uh, we'll be doing a lot of those over the next seven days. Uh, looks like with Nick Lorne, uh, the producer of the Swing. And Chris uh, Cuffaro, who I guess is a, a photographer, fashion sort of extravaganza in terms of a lot of the great pics he took, I think, of uh, the band and Michael. Is that right, B? Mm-hmm. They're going to be having some of these, uh, uh, I guess, interviews go out very, very soon. Uh, but uh, yeah, I think there'll be enough in excess content over the next seven, eight days on the three-hour deep dive with Nick uh, for the full sort of edition there. Um, also, to B uh, at the time, I guess of uh, the last two weeks, we uh, did have a winner also in our auction. Uh, so, big congratulations! Uh, who was our winner there that we could uh, say well done?
0: So, our winner, congratulations! I did congratulate him um, on our, my little quickie with B. I didn't oh, even notice okay. that. Um, <laughs> his name's John. Great guy. Hopefully he's got that. I've asked him to take some photos for us when he gets it. So that's good. Um, I've been talking to lots of people um, while I've been sick. I want to give a big shout out to Martin. Martin's from Birmingham as well. So we had a lovely chat from, um, on, on Instagram, Crystal Trixie. I'm sure you'll try and find out who she is, uh, Hayden. Um, She sounds quite a a lively girl, doesn't she? (laughs) Crystal Trixie. We've got Mark Burnett, Michael um, Spriggs has come back into our um, lives as well, which is lovely. Him and um, Mary um, used to do a lot of exchanging in the day. And, um I want to say thank you to everybody who actually listened to us about asking are you are you messaging me Hayden?
1: Uh, <laughs> you reminded me to say hello to someone on our <laughs> patron page so I said uh, hi to Darren because <laughs> because right. I got this sort of post uh, <laughs> and I've got a Juliet to give me a thumbs up so I've got this post going hi oh my God is that you Hayden the real one and only hey hey I'm gonna pass out if it is you ha buddy gee, I love being on a in excess. N-U-T, ha, 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 rock on. <laughs> so, uh, so so I, I, I was like, I, I'm not very important, but I thought I'd better acknowledge the, the build-up there by saying hello back. So thank you, Darren, and hello. And, and Darren has just recently become a, uh, a patron, hasn't he?
0: D- Darren, I talk at least twice a day i think right, okay. um, he's he's really fun i really like him he's quite fun um but there's lots of other people out there too andrew everett as well and simone um thank you i was mentioning that before i was really interrupted by hayden's tweeting texting um <laughs> um about putting some reviews on, onto our website it really makes a difference for other fans to find out um, yep. and here your your lovely reviews that you give so thank you very much um the in excess um quiz um is coming very soon um we're going to be having round 1 at the end of this month and that will be Australia so if anyone's interested please um let me know via uh, messenger or email and we'll get um that ready for you that will be going out. um but um also we've um our youtube um documentary that we did has had some great reviews too and thank you very much if you found us via youtube and you've actually found the podcast i'd like to say hello to all you guys and if you like us tell us tell all your friends
1: fantastic All right, but we're going to let you rest up and we're not going to drag this out anymore because you've done an awesome job getting on tonight. But we thought we'd go out with a little bit of a uh, double shot today and it has a bit of a theme. Uh, It is 30 years since, welcome to wherever you are. And one of the little interesting facts that a lot of our listeners were unaware of uh, until Mark Opitz came on the podcast uh, and we did our review was that the opening song on the album, Questions, is actually sung by Andrew Farris. Um, there is obviously a version that Michael sings but the final finished one you hear on the uh original welcome album uh, original welcome album is Andrew so we're going to do that little sort of uh sort of prelude song to start off today and uh we can do a little bit of a double shot of Andrew one one uh stepping back in time with the welcome anniversary and one in the future uh sort of period of now so to speak uh of Andrew's uh burgeoning uh country career although you are my Rocker a so rocker, isn't it as well? So, um, and it was written with Kieran. Did you know that he wrote it with Kieran? Yeah, yeah. Notchalantly nodding at me like, yeah, duh, you know. So uh, <laughs> that's fine. But uh, uh, I will say, B, as I do, it's a goodbye from me.
0: And I'll switch my. <laughs> I'll
1: switch <laughs> I thought you were the Marcel Marceau version of exiting there, B. <laughs> oh,
0: I'm
1: going back it to. the lips were moving and nothing was coming oh, no, out. <laughs> no, okay, I'll
0: switch the microphone back on. Let me try it
1: again. It's a goodbye from me.
0: And it's a goodbye from B. Goodbye, everybody.